chapter of the Bible, the 22nd chapter of the Revelation, beginning at the 6th verse through the 14th. And as those of us here in the congregation turn to this passage that we can share together in it, I would invite those thousands who share in this congregation and this worship experience and the means of television also to turn to the passage, and in that way we form one enormous congregation for the Lord. Revelation, the 22nd chapter, beginning at verse 6. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And he saith unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Verses 6 through 14. The 14th verse of the 22nd chapter of the Revelation says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Jesus spoke much 
about the Christian life being a life that follows along the way, the narrow way. And this appealed, I think, to the Eastern mind. If you'll remember your ancient geography, the ancient cities of the Eastern world were never located on the major thoroughfares, but rather, for safety reasons, are located off generally on a countryside. So the main caravan routes connecting countries and major cities would never go directly to the city itself, rather down through some valley. The city would be located to the right or to the left at some distance, a road, a narrower road, from the major thoroughfare leading then on into the city itself. The city, the ancient city, would always be walled. That's one of the fascinating things in the study of archaeology today. If I were about 25 or 30 years younger than I am, I think if I could somehow have at that earlier age, some of the interest that I have this morning, I think probably I would go into the area of biblical archaeology. It's a fascinating study to go and to dig around amidst the ruins of these ancient civilizations and discover the boundaries of the cities and to measure the rocks and the stones that are left that form the walls and the layout of the streets and to see where whole cities had been destroyed by armies, and houses had fallen in, libraries and utensils uncovered and put back together. It is an extremely fascinating area. It is a fascinating field. The archaeologists discover in these ancient cities that, that many times in the growth of cities there would be a number of walls that would go around the ancient city. Jerusalem is a perfect illustration of that, that as we dig down level after level after level under the streets and under the buildings and amidst the ruins of the present city, we discover that many, many cities have existed on this site. And so there are the different walls that have been constructed and we find parts of them or massive stones that form other sections of them. But for protective purposes, the ancient cities would be walled, and then the gates would be there. More often than not, and of course it would depend on the size of the city entirely, size of the town, to whether or not there would be more than one gate. Sometimes there would be just one gate, that's all. And all the movement in and out of that particular town or city would have to move through that one gate. If it happened to be big enough and if the defense forces of the city strong enough, had enough men so that guards could be set at more than one gate, then there would be more than one. There would be a number of gates surrounding it. But in the city itself, with the walls that would surround it and the major gate that would go in, the traveler 
knew that as he would move from the major thoroughfare into a city, that he would move through a series of gates often, where guards would be set, often uh, in order to collect revenue. Now, you've driven enough to know that when you get on a toll road up here in Kentucky or you get ready to cross a toll bridge, you've got to have some shekels in your pocket and you throw it in the container or you buy the little ticket in order to pay the way at the toll gate as a way of raising revenue. Now, that's a, you see, that's not something new. That's been around a long, long time. And the king of a city or the ruler of a territory would establish the same sort of revenue-producing thing. Here would be a gate, and there would be some guards around it. The fence would go for just a little bit, the walls for a little bit, to keep a major caravan or a traveler from, uh, from just skirting the gate itself and moving right on through. And many of them would be toll gates, where they'd have to pay a tax in order to move on down the way. But there would be a series of these gates through which the traveler would pass before he would find himself at last within the city that he wanted to go to. So this speaks to us of great truth as it relates to the Christian life. That in the journey of the Christian life, traveling down this road that Jesus called narrow, it's not an easy road always. It's not always easy to know exactly where the narrow road is moving as far as this week and next week and next month is concerned. But it is the way that Jesus has marked out. The broad road is easy to find. And there are a lot of folks, our master said, who travel down the broad highways. It doesn't take much gumption, doesn't take much sense, you know, in order to go down the broad road of being a drinker or to use dope or just to live any old way you want to. Any, any nut can live like that, can find that kind of a highway. You don't have to have any special smarts in order to, to move down the broad way. But the way into life everlasting into the city of the master, into that city that Jesus gives the beautiful name heaven. There are a number of gates through which the traveler, through which a pilgrim will travel. It implies that there is surrender after surrender that must take place. Test after test, will come to us in the direction of life itself. We must learn along the way that self-denial, time after time, is not something that is negative, but something that is positive to our own well-being and to the glory of God. Gates, gates were not meant necessarily then to, in this ancient eastern world, 
to impede progress. No, gates rather were there along the narrow way leading from the thoroughfare to the city. Gates were there to mark the levels of progress and also to give a sense of security to the traveler because as the traveler moved from the thoroughfare to the city, there would be thieves along the side of the road. And the very fact that having moved through a series of gates where guards had been present would give that sense of security that in the travel, that if difficulty comes along the way, help is not very far away. So I want us to look for a few minutes in this matter of our journey, of our travel, from the major thoroughfares of life to the walled city where God is, and to that walled city that we call the victory of the Christian life. I want us to take a look at that narrow road and some of the gates through which we must pass. The first, certainly the most obvious, certainly the most important gate through which the pilgrim must pass if he is to leave the thoroughfare and the busyness of life in order at last to know the sweetness of the victory of Jesus is a gate that is simply and beautifully marked salvation. Salvation. You don't get to the city celestial. You don't get to the place called heaven. You cannot get into that realm of a village or the town or the city that is marked victory in this life if you try to bypass or to go around or to substitute the gate of salvation. Jesus put it simply and beautifully when he said, I am the way. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Another time, Jesus was talking about this very thing. And he said, you know, you're like so many sheep. And I'm your shepherd. And there are folks who are trying to route the sheep through different ways. And Jesus said, it just won't work. I'm the shepherd. And I give you, said Jesus, the right to come and to go to have liberty and free passage into the life victorious. And if you try to achieve that by any other person or by any other means other than me, well, you're just like a thief. You're like a thief trying to crawl in the window or break in a back door. And Jesus said, just won't work. Just won't work. The gate of salvation is a beautiful, beautiful gate. Sometimes at this distance, 2,000 years from the life of our Lord here upon this earth, from that experience when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, it's very easy for us to almost shrug our shoulders and say, well, so what? What was so wonderful about, about Jesus? What was so different about him? What was so wonderful about about the cross on which he died, about the sacrifice he made. 
You know, we've seen so many pictures of the crucifixion. We have sung so many songs about the blood. And we have thought about it. We've heard so many sermons about it. We've had so many Sunday school lessons about it. We've seen so many crucifix. The body of the dead Christ hanging on a cross. We've seen that so much. It's easy for us to develop a ho-hum kind of an attitude toward it all. But the gate of salvation is a very costly and a very precious gate. The gate of salvation was designed by God himself. No human architect played a part in that. No human builder provided any of the building stones for that. When we look at the gate that is marked salvation into the life victorious, it is the gate that is designed by God. God's a great architect. Did you know that? God's had a lot of experience in designing things. Why, God designed this world. I've been really interested. I'm, I'm always interested when our scientific brains achieve a breakthrough, discover something else wonderful about this world in which we live. You are aware, I'm sure, because it's newsworthy. Although we have received so much of it in our lifetime, this too sort of gets ho-hum with us. But I guess about $700 million of our tax dollars have been currently spent in sending that latest satellite up to Venus and circling that and the landing has taken place and the signals are coming back to tell us what kind of chemical elements and what sort of atmospheric conditions prevail and the things about Venus. And, th and that's all interesting. I'm excited about the discovery of these new things. But you know, we, we have to stop and remember that what we're just now discovering, probably several million years after God put it in place, is that God did put it in place. God designed it. God knows exactly what Venus looks like. And he knows exactly about Pluto, and he knows exactly about Saturn and about the, the various satellites that move about Saturn. Why, he knows all about the moon, he knows all about the sun, he knows all about this earth. Why is it we think it is so difficult when we read in the Bible that God said to a man named Noah, build your boat and build it this many feet long and this many feet wide and this many feet tall and build it out of this material and pitch it, make it, make it waterproof with this kind of material and, and it's going to work for you. And folks scratch their head and say, isn't that really something? You can build a boat that big and get all get two of the different kind of animals and, and, and get all those. Isn't that something? Well, it's not something. It's not really something for God. God had designed this universe in which we're a part. God had designed the heaven and where he rules. Why is it we're perplexed? When we see that God is a divine architect, divine designs a thing like the ark. Or the tabernacle in all its beauty and wonder. Or the temple itself. All of it coming out of the great designing mind of the eternal God. And so when God begins to design the gates, the gates that lead to the victorious life, we should not be surprised, though we are. 
It always comes as a surprise. We discover some new truth about it. We continue to read the Bible. We continue to study it. And every time we take up this Bible, every verse that we read, every time we're serious about it, we discover something new about what God has done for us. Does that mean God has not been doing it or been willing to do it before we discovered it? Not at all. It simply means we continue to discover it because the truth of God and the, the richness of God is beyond our own finite minds ever to totally and completely comprehend. But oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to keep on discovering, to keep on seeing. It's wonderful to keep on discovering new and great and wonderful and beautiful things. Solomon had built the glories of the temple and the wonder of that palace in Jerusalem. And the queen of Sheba had gotten word about how beautiful and how wonderful it was over in Jerusalem. Now you know how rumor spreads. The queen of Sheba lived way down in the south of the Arabian desert. Long, long, long way. So the only way she was able to get that particular word about how beautiful and how wonderful Solomon's temple was and Solomon's palace and the town in the city of Jerusalem itself was just by word of mouth. Here the caravans, you know, would come through and the selling of the ancient spices and the rugs and all the rest. And they'd go back and they'd tell these marvelous stories. Well, you know how stories multiply. They just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Queen of Sheba said, listen, I just don't believe that. I said, I've got to go see that for myself. I don't know how long it took her. I tried to estimate that particular trip, and it probably took the Queen of Sheba something over six months to go from where she lived across that desert journey into the city of Jerusalem itself. Finally, she came. She looked around. King Solomon came down and welcomed her opened to her, you know, gave her the keys to the city and gave her the royal tour. And she looked and she was bug-eyed and she looked all around. And she said, oh, she said, why? She said, I, I heard that it was wonderful, but the half had not been told. The half. The same is true every time we take time to discover any of the great truths that God has given us. When we'll take time to study the gates through which we as individuals are privileged to pass as Christians, the gates that God himself has designed, the gates that God has created. And when we begin to study those gates, we begin to see them and begin to look at them. We're amazed over and over and over again. Oh, listen to me. This is a plea this morning that we not just take for granted the gate of salvation as though it were just something that God happened to do in the tidbits of time that he happened to have available with nothing else to do. Don't ever stop to think that the greatness of the gift of salvation, the gate of salvation, that who is Christ himself, that this is some little odd something that just happened to be along life's highway. The gate of salvation in the mind of God from all eternity, the gate of salvation, in the planning and the greatness and the power of God from all eternity, the gate of salvation, embellished, embellished with all the beauty and all the wonder and all the excitement that God and all the angels of God could bring to pass. 
and all the wonder and all the beauty that we celebrate in these days that we call Christmas concerning the birth of God in flesh upon this earth. It all is a part of this gate. It's the gate of salvation. It's the gate of salvation that we're invited to look at, the gate of salvation that we are invited to experience, the gate of salvation, Jesus himself, and we're invited to move with him on to the victorious life. Oh, listen to me. Gates, the most important gate you'll ever move through in all your life is the gate of Jesus. Indeed, if you ignore Jesus, if you neglect Jesus, if you try to bypass Jesus, if you follow anyone else thinking that someone else is the Messiah of your soul, you're going to be disappointed because that gate will lead you away from God and away from the life that is victorious. I don't know about you, but my own heart continues to be very, very heavy of the tragedy in Guyana in these last weeks. And as we have thought soberly of the suicide and murder of 912 people, they tried to find the rationale behind it. How could such a thing take place? It is because men want a Messiah. Men and women, there's something deep down in all of us that says there must be a Savior. And here was a man, misguided, bedeviled, who set himself forth as a Messiah, as a Savior. And those who chose to go through that gate found that it did not lead to that which is victorious or glorious or God-honoring, but found only tragedy. And despair. Jesus. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way. Jesus. Jesus who left the glories of the ivory palaces of heaven and who came born subject to the disciplines of being a baby. Jesus is the gate God designed, the gate between wherever we are and God himself. Having passed through the gate, experiencing the excitement and the thrill that only the salvation experience can bring, oh, it comes to different ones of us in different ways. Paul had such an experience out of it that we had almost a conversion experience with the, the name of the road on which he found Jesus, what we call being converted, being on our own personal Damascus road. It was such a thrilling thing for him. Others have found it to be equally so. Others of us have found the experience to be just as real, though maybe not quite as dramatic. 
when I was 10 years old in the midst of a revival service in Houston, Texas. It was there that an older friend put his hand on my shoulder at the time of the invitation. I had grown up in that church, crawled around on the floor in the nursery of that church, but I had never accepted Jesus as my Lord, my Savior. I had seen his picture, or as the artist had rendered, I had sung the songs, I had been to church training, and I had been at Sunday school, and I had been a royal ambassador. I knew what the gate looked like, but I had never gone through the gate until an older friend, in the moment of invitation, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Ralph, wouldn't you like to become a Christian? And that bit of encouragement, I moved through the gate. Having accepted Christ as Savior, and I pray to God that you have, having journeyed from the thoroughfare of life to that place where somewhere along the way back there you saw the gate that is Christ Jesus, and you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh, you didn't understand all about it. You didn't understand all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Christ. You didn't understand all the ramifications of what it meant when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was spilled. You didn't know all about all of those things that really happened concerning being placed in a tomb and coming out of the grave and being alive in the flesh after his death. All of those different things. You didn't know all of those, but you knew the gate was there, and it was beautiful, and you'd been invited to go through, and you accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and you moved through. On to the life of prayer. Let me share with you, you happen to be in this congregation, there's a thousand who share, and you're part of this television congregation this morning, that if perchance you know about the gate, you've been traveling the thoroughfares of life, but you're not on the way to the city victorious, and you know about Jesus, but you've never accepted Jesus, and therefore you've not gone through the gate into life everlasting and life eternal, but today is the day God has given to you, the day to accept Christ and to move by faith through that gate. having accepted Christ, having believed in Him, having received from Him that which He gives, that which He offers, we continue the journey. We continue the journey to the life victorious, and we approach another gate. And the other gate that we approach as, as a Christian man. The individual who's not a Christian never gets that far down the road to see these other gates. I'm talking now about the gates that the Christian is privileged to go on through as the Christian continues in the grand adventure of the Christian life. What a tragedy it is that so many folks, having experienced faith in Christ, having trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, having moved through the gate that is called the redemption of God, then to sit down on the side of the road and stay there and go no farther at all in the Christian life. But the plea, the plea this morning 
is that having experienced faith, we now continue to travel. We now continue to set our sights that hand in hand with Christ and in league with Christ and in company with Christ and with our fellow Christians. We move on down this Christian road in search of the other gate that God has out there for us. And I see another gate leading up. And this is the gate of faith. Service. We're saved to serve. And I believe with all my heart that you will never find the kind of happiness as a Christian that God wants you to have as a Christian. You'll never find it if you live just for yourself. Or if you live just for your husband or just for your wife or just for your mother or father, or just for your kids. There are those who want to quarrel with Jesus about that and say, well, he evidently didn't think much of the family. Jesus said, listen, if you want to do your husband or your wife the biggest favor in the world, I think Jesus is saying, if you want to do your kids the best favor you can do your kids, then you serve me first. You put me first, and when you put me first, the kind of fellowship we'll have together will make you a better husband, will make you a better wife, will make you a better child, will make you a better parent, will make you a better employee. But when Christ is put first, then it is that we move through the days of service, and we touch the lives, other lives, and we begin to try to bless them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a thing in the world wrong in trying to make money in this world. I have known some fabulously wealthy people in my time, people who have dedicated their all, the ability to make money, the ability to use their resources to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for people who will turn over the abilities God has given them to touch life and to make life worthwhile and count and to turn it all to the glory of the Lord Jesus. There is that gate that calls service, service to God and service to others. There is that which is, means that we're saved to sacrifice. One of the hardest things going nowadays is to try to make churches effective and function and do what Jesus wants the church to do by folks who are stingy. Stingy Christians. Little Christians, puny Christians, constantly arguing with God about a dime out of a dollar. And as long as you somehow or other experience the joy of salvation, but you're stinging. You've missed the thrill and the excitement and the wonder and the beauty of moving on beyond that second gate in the Christian journey, which is the gate of service. Your happiness and joy comes when you learn to serve. There's another gate. I have time only to touch upon it. But oh, what an important gate it is. It is the gate of holiness. Holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Does it mean to be odd or peculiar 
Or to be a fanatic? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But the Christian is called to a life of holiness, which means that we are to be true, true in our dealings. We are to be pure, that we are to be just, that we are to be humble, that we are to be gentle, that we are to be forgiving, that we are to be faithful, and that we live our lives unspotted from the world. The Christian in the journey of the Christian life, moving through that glorious gate designed by God, Christ himself, the gate of salvation, we journey on in the Christian life through the gate of service as to what we can do for him, finding along the way that we want to go through the gate of holiness, being like, being like Jesus, living in this present age. And then at last, at last when Jesus is ready for us, at last, at last he'll call us to come on home. At last he'll call us to the place, to the place where he is, and the place where all will make sense, and the place where all the pieces get put together. There are gates. There are the gates of the victorious life. How many of you choose to pass through to determine who you are and what you are and what you count for? How many gates are you willing to go through the gate of service? The road leads to happiness as a Christian. Are you willing to approach the gate of holiness, of separate living from the world? That if by faith you're willing to go through, you'll find joy unimaginable on the other side. We're going to sing hymn number 182. The Savior is waiting. Savior is waiting at that first gate, Mark Salvation. What are you going to do with Jesus? If you've gone through that gate, you'll find Jesus as you journey. He's waiting for you. It's a gate called service. He has a job for you to do. What are you going to do with Jesus? The Savior is waiting. If you find your place of service, you will surrender, and you move right along. You'll find him at the gate marked holiness, and he'll give you strength to match your faith. The Savior is waiting. Will you accept him? Will you follow him? Will you give your life to him? Will you serve him? Will you have church membership? for your life to mean something for him. Through the gate, we stand and sing when you come.
there are some gates that are in front of you. You've journeyed right up to the very edge. You're looking and wondering what's on the other side. Listen. The victory comes when by faith we pass through the gate. Not enough to know it's there. It is not enough to know what Jesus wants you to do. By faith you must take the step and journey. Accept Christ as your Savior. Take the step of faith. You'll find that Jesus will be true to his word. He'll do for you not only what he has promised, but more than ever you could dream. You've been holding back on Jesus. You know he saved you. You trusted him. You can go back to the place where you accepted him as your Lord. But somehow, somehow, here lately things have not been as bright as they ought to be for you. You haven't had the joy in Christ that maybe once you knew. It should be that you stand before the gate of surrender to serve. Are you surrendered? Are you willing to serve? Maybe you don't know what he wants you to do with your life. But until you let him know that you're willing to do it, I don't think he'll be telling you what it is. Through the gate of service, that may be your gate today. As a Christian, you've let things get into your life. And you know you're not living like a Christian. Disappointed Jesus. You failed him. Your life is marked by a selfishness. By sin that has come since salvation that you have not yet confessed. And you're carrying it like a heavy, heavy burden. It might be that you're standing before the gate of holiness. You'll put your faith in Christ, the same faith you put in him to save you. And ask him to lift you help you to know the cleanness you want you What a difference today would make for you. You'll go from this place a new and a happy person in Christ. What gate? John just had the choice. Go through your gate. 